Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're, we're going to pick up in Matthew 22 uh, the, at verse 41 because it kind of sets up the next chapter. For context, Jesus has been tested in the temple by the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the scribes. Every major religious leadership group has taken their shots at Jesus, and every single one of them has been confounded. Um, and this goes back to, in the first century, one of the ways they would teach is they would pose a question and the teacher would have to try to field the question. So as new rabbis emerged, they would pose better and better questions and say, well, why this? And how about this? And um, was, was Joab right to kill Abner or not? And they would pose these questions in the, te in the temple. And then the way the rabbi handled the question was how they got prominence. So this process that's going, it sounds like they're just kind of attacking him and attacking him, and they are, but they're doing it within the culture that they were in at that time. So Jesus has been tested. He has proven himself to be the superior rabbi in every one of these interactions, every one of these situations. So he handles them. And I want to point out before we dig into verse 41, this too fulfills a prophecy. And with Matthew, it's like every paragraph we're fulfilling prophecies. So for your notes, this is Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 10. He, this whole process is fulfilling this thing. And, and I, I'm just going to read it because I think this is just one of those things that pops out. Jeremiah 20, verse 20, 10. I heard many mocking, fear on every side. Sounds like today. Report, they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be induced. Then we'll prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. And as we read these interactions with the Pharisees, their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. Like it absolutely fulfills this prophecy. So now Jesus, it shifts gears. This is why we ended last week on verse 40. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, um, Jesus asked them, this is the first time Jesus has approached the religious leadership in the entire New Testament. So now it's his turn. You, you know what I mean? It's kind of like the, the, you know, when Rocky takes his shots for two, three rounds in the boxing ring and he just gets the tar beat out of him. And then all of a sudden it's his turn to take a shot. Like he gets that, you know, second wind. And, and you feel like it's, they've had, Jesus has just op opened himself up to every blow they could throw at him. He's taken every single one. Now it's his turn. And the way he comes back is, is this question about David is what he throws at them. And again, this is within that tradition. It's just his turn and he's going to give them a question. And if they can respond to it, then they're his equal or his better um, because he's going to pose a, a, a conundrum to them. Verse 42, here it is. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Flat out, that is the question. And it's the question for all of us. Who's the Christ? 
And, and whose son is you? Of, of what nature is he? So to be the son of someone means that you're their descendant or you're the, their lesser. So they would say so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, because they were underneath that person's household. So who's the Christ and whose son is he? Who is he lesser than? Like what status does he have? And they said to him the stock answer. Like they're like, ah, oh, that's an easy one. That's low-hanging fruit. He's the son of David. The Messiah will be the son of David. The Christ will be the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit of the Lord? So we all believe when he wrote the Psalms that the spirit of God was upon him when he wrote those. How then in the spirit of the Lord, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord saying, and he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So that psalm is not about the Mosaic priesthood. It's an entire psalm about the priesthood of Melchizedek. They know this when he says it. And he's questioning their priesthood. He has admonished their hypocrisy. And now he, he points them to a psalm that points to an entirely different priesthood system that God blessed and ordained during the time of Abraham, Melchizedek. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? So this is one of those... They asked all these gotcha questions with the intent to destroy. I think Jesus is asking this question with the intent to save and to teach. He's giving them a chance to realize the error of their thinking. Jesus asked them then the only question that matters, who is the Christ? And in Matthew 16, he did the same thing with his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And they, and they tell him, you're the one, you're the, you're the Messiah. And he says, you're right about that. So he's asking them about himself, but he does it in the third person so they can kind of work this through without Jesus being part of the question. Who's the Christ? Whose son is he? And if he's that son, the son of David title uh, is, the, is the idea back in Matthew 1, chapter 1. He got the title of Matthew 1, 1, which starts with that claim that he is the son of David. So the whole genealogy in the first chapter, thanks, Mike, the whole genealogy in the first chapter has to do with the claim that Jesus is the son of David. He's the biological descendant, or not biological, he's the legal heir of the throne of David. He's of that tribe of Judah. He's of that family. So why are they using this title? Because he's asking the Pharisees, it's used for the actual sons in the Old Testament. The title son of David was given to Absalom, 2 Samuel 13, 1, and it was given to Solomon, 1 Chronicles 29, 22. It was never really given to the Messiah. It was given to his biological sons, the son of David. Throughout the Old Testament, there's another title, the Son of God, that gets used in relation to Messiah and Christ. So when, he, when they answer Son of David, they're answering, answering the descendant of David is how they're thinking of it, in a very earthly sense. That said, there's a promise that was made to David. So Jesus uses the Old Testament as authority. This is why we read the Old Testament also, is because this is what Jesus used to do everything. When your days are over, this is 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 really clearly says there's going to be a descendant and it's from your own body. It's going to be a biological descendant. And that person will reign forever. They will not be human in nature. They'll be eternal in nature. So this is where the, I'm just defending the, the religious leader, leadership right now. They're actually saying the right thing. The Messiah will be the son of David. And so we have some clues around this title. And I want to unpack this because I think it's really cool. 
you go all the way back to Genesis and the promise to Eve was one of your seed will crush Satan. It will defeat this whole curse that, that Adam and Eve were getting. And he says to Eve that there's going to be one that comes. And throughout the entire Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that promise gets renewed over and over again. And throughout the prophets, throughout the histories, we get a clearer and clearer image of who the Messiah will be. All the way through the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all about pointing to Jesus. And they said to him, the son of David, in our verse, because the promise the Savior was narrowed down to David's house. That's what they knew in the progressive revelation. It was confirmed by Jeremiah. He was talking to Israel about all their sin. And, and Jeremiah promises them that they'll have a sinless king at some point. That Messiah will have no sin. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. The word there is sprout. I like that. It's not Nazarene. It's, it means a sprout. And, the ki and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice on the earth. Isaiah then, you got Jeremiah and Isaiah. Isaiah confirms that this will not just be a sinless king. It'll also be an eternal king. Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, eternal. And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forevermore, the zeal or the passion, I think that's interesting. In the Hebrew, the word zeal there means passion. And we still use the passion of the Christ. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this, this act of justice that will solve all sin. So the Old Testament promises it. It narrows it down to David. It narrows it down to a sinless king. It narrows it down to an eternal king. But how can an eternal king be born of David, a human? How does that happen? It's, it's a conundrum that gets no answer. And Jesus knows that he's putting something in front of them that they think they've resolved because the rabbis are using everything that's in the Old Testament to come to the conclusion. They just don't have the key to unlock the box. So he's asking them about one of those key mysteries. And they're like, they're telling him the right answer, the son of David. That said, I don't think Jesus is trying to trap them like they were trying to trap him. He's not trying to do that kind of gotcha question. He's leading them through like a good rabbi does. He's leading them through a series of questions that gets them so they understand their own failing. It's Socratic method. And so he's practicing that approach. Jesus is born of David in the line of, Ma he's born of David in the line of Matthew and he has legal right through Joseph, his father, in the tribe of Gentlemen. He is the son, he is a son of David. Here's the other thing. Part of what Matthew's arguing here is that Jesus is the son of David. There's lots of son of Davids that are out there. In Matthew 1.20, Joseph, his dad, is called the son, a son of David. Joseph, a son of David. So the title son of David just means you're in, basically you're in the tribe of Judah and you're a male, right? It doesn't narrow it down very much. So what Jesus is trying to do here is narrow this thing down for the, the folks that are right now fighting him. So there's tons of David's descendants out there, but is this the one? And that's something you can't just throw out there. But Jesus has been fulfilling prophecy after prophecy in the book of Matthew. Like we're 23 chapters into, 22 chapters into this. At this point, the point of Matthew is Jesus is the one and the prophecies are getting fulfilled faster than order fulfillment in a McDonald's drive-through. It's literally every paragraph, every chapter, there's just more and more of these getting done. So this shows the power of heaven over nature, sickness, death, leprosy. He's healed people. He's solved their blindness. Um, he has healed their souls and, 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 and discipled people. He's done everything the Bible said should happen. He's already, through the last couple chapters, taken all the responsibilities of the high priest 
because the priests weren't doing them. And now he's testing them. They tried to find a sin in him, any wicked way, any wayward thing, and they couldn't do it. For me, at least, if you all tried to like sit and question me and find sin in my life, it'd take you all about five minutes. You know, Jesus has been there days and they can't find anything in this guy. There's nothing. No one will speak against him at this point. So in asking about the Christ and in naming the son of David, they clearly just heard all of the people give him this title. That's why they hate to give this answer because he's getting them to say it with their own lips. So why the son of David? Because it's commonly said, but Jesus has already been called this title six times in the book of Matthew. This is where tax collector Matthew gets, this is where people get like, where they really start for looking for patterns. Time number one, Matthew 9, 27, two blind men called him the son of David. Time number two, Matthew 12, 23, the multitudes called him the son of David. Then in, in 15, 22, a Canaanite woman calls him the son of David. Time number three. The fourth time, it's again, two blind men, chapter 20, verse 30. In 21, 9, again, it's a multitude on Palm Sunday that call him the son of David. Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. And then just in a couple chapters ago in chapter 21, verse 15, the children start singing out the son of David. Blind people, multitudes, people that aren't part of the religious elite, a woman and now children. The seventh time he's given the title son of David is from the mouths of the priests. And Jesus just put them in a spot where they had to say it with their own mouth. And in that, it becomes the seventh time in the book of Matthew where he's called the son of David. You think that's an accident? Heck no. David set all of this up. It's divine perfection. In numerology or gematria in, in the Hebrew, the number seven, we say the word seven, but it actually is the word perfection or divine perfection in the Hebrew. It's the same word. To be fair, to connect Christ to the son of David, the rabbis haven't quite done that. They're not calling Jesus the son of David. They're calling the Christ the son of David. But in doing that, they're not admitting that Jesus is that person, but it does acknowledge that whoever's the Christ gets the title son of David. And in doing that, they just said it with their own mouths. How then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Jesus points that out. This isn't about lineage. David's speaking in the spirit and he's calling somebody a Lord. A father doesn't call their son Lord. Not today, not in any culture. It really just doesn't happen. Right? That idea of giving homage or flipping that relationship. So how then can a descendant of David be calling David their Lord? Or how can the David be calling that person their Lord? And the reaction is, in the spirit, David's actually talking about God. He's talking about the divine and eternal nature of God as he's writing about these things. David's son then is a reference to humanity, but the Christ is a reference to divinity for David himself. You with me on this? Okay. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Again, that's a reference to Psalm 110. But it's not just Psalm 110. David calls, um, call, calls on and talks about an infinite son or an infinite Lord many, many times. As he's writing his psalms, he's writing psalms for Jehovah. And he does this again. So there has to be an incarnation of God himself into a human for there to be this son of David that's also the son of God. It has to work that way. And this is the progressive revelation of the whole Old Testament coming to a spear tip. Jesus is connecting those dots for the Pharisees and all the multitudes that are listening. This is the answer to this mystery. So it's, I even threw this one in here. 
when Job has the whole world turn against him and everything's down for Job, Job 9.32, he says, For God is not a man as I am, that I can answer to him, that we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. It's the cry of Job. There has to be an intermediate, there has to be a mediator. There has to be some, I'm not, I can't buddy up with God. We're not friends. We're not equals. So who can go before God, but God's own equal? So I have nothing, without a mediator, I'm absolutely hanging out to dry. I'm a lowly human trying to make some defense of my life. And I can't do that because I'm not God's equal. So it's the mystery of Job. It's the mystery of the whole Old Testament. Jesus is the fully human son of David, legally through Jacob, like he should have the rights to the throne. And that's given him that title a perfect seven times. Jesus is also the fully divine son of God. I know you all know this, but I'm, I just want to lock this in because it's what Jesus is doing. The only two fully incarnated humans that are the sons of God are Adam, born of God, and Jesus, born of God. There's only two. So when you see people actually biologically being sighed by God himself, then that being is more than David, way more than David. And David understood this, that that mediator would be there. Revelation 22:16, Jesus speaks for himself. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches, that I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. I'm the root in that I am spiritually of the same plant, and I'm the offspring. I'm literally as offspring. I'm both. I'm the son of David, and I'm the son of God. And it's now the same individual. This is amazing what, what he's doing. So if Jesus is just a human, he carries the full curses of Adam, and he's not a good sacrifice because he's flawed. If Jesus is just a spirit or he's just God, then he has no curse, and he has no ability to be, make an end to the curse. He's not part of humanity. He has to be both, both God and man. And this is the theology of Christianity it's, as we reconcile these things. So the Messiah then is more than the earthly son of David, and that's accepted. And the Messiah is no less than God himself because only God would deserve the title son of God. Right? So we know this. It's full revelation. We take this for granted, but for these folks in this conversation, that's a total mystery being solved. A total mystery, something they could never understand from the Old Testament. This is new. It is a new testament that gets brought before the people of the first century. Jesus is attributing deity to the Messiah in ways that have been done throughout the Old Testament, but he's directly making that connection. Satan has called Jesus the Son of God in chapter four, 3 and 4, 6. The demons have called Jesus the Son of God, chapter 8, verse 29. The disciples, after the thing on the water, they called him the Son of God, chapter 14, 33. He's challenged by the priests who mock him using the title Son of God in chapter 26. And then he's mocked by the crowd in chapter 27 using the title Son of God. They're, they're, they're using the title, but they're mocking him when they do it. And then the last time it gets used, that title Son of God is in chapter 27, 54 coming up. And the centurion, the Gentile, says, truly, this is the Son of God. Truly, this is the Son of God. All the earth shakes when the cross occurs. So the title Son of God in the book of Matthew only gets used six times, the number of man. It's incomplete. It's not fulfilled. Right? So Son of David, totally fulfilled. 
the resurrection not fulfilled. I just think this is amazing. Then you think, where does that last title come from? And the reality is, just like with the son of David, time number seven was the priests giving that title. Time number seven, Romans 1, 1 through 4, one of the guys in the crowd at the temple who's watching them attack Jesus is going to give him that title, but it's after the resurrection. So the Pentecost happens. God is introduced. Jesus himself shows up in Paul's life, a Pharisee, one of the top Pharisees, rising up and comers. And this is how he introduces himself. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scripture. It's all been said in the Old Testament. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection sealed the deal. And the seventh time he's given the title son of God is by a priest again. Perfect. Divine perfection, utter fulfillment. Verse 46, now we can see why verse 46 happens. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare question him anymore. Because if he's right, you're questioning God. If he's wrong, you know he's going to own you intellectually and you're going to look like a fool. So nobody bothers to do it. They have to go to other means to take care of Jesus. But there's no one left to challenge him. So there's the whole temple courtyard where they examine sacrifices to make sure they're pure and without blemish. By backing off of Jesus, they also fulfill prophecy because Leviticus 23.12 says, You shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. All sacrifices had to be inspected. And when the priests back off because they can find no blemish and they don't dare keep looking, they've just approved their sacrifice. Kidding, Matthew. This is significant that he's unblemished, that he's been totally tested, and they can't find any wicked way in him. He's perfect. Then they could find no blemish on the Lamb of God, giving God giving his only begotten Son as the sacrifice. This is exactly how the disciples move forward talking about what happened here. First Peter 1.19, this is Peter himself. It was it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless. Lamb of God. So he gets that title too. Just put that title back on the thing. Wow. All of that sets up this next part. Jesus has now talked to the crowd. Verse 1 of Matthew 23, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. Now he's going to turn to the people that are following him or, or thinking about following him. He's done with the priesthood. They're over. And he's, he's established himself that way. So he speaks really in this moment. And he spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, you observe it. That observe and do. But do not do according to their works. For they say and they do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move with one of their fingers. They're done. And he announces it to the crowd. This whole group of people that think they're in charge, they're not anymore. Leave it. Back off. This is like when you tell a kid when you're training them in, don't touch. And then they start walking over there all suspicious-like, looking back over their shoulder. And then you have to be like, don't do it. And then they reach out to test you. 
and they either get zapped by the thing that they're trying to touch or you have to get your voice at a different level. Don't do it. Back off. And that's what Jesus is doing right now with his disciples. Back off these people. Get away from them. I've shown them to be false. So walk away. And in that, there's a respect that comes. They sit in Moses' seat. In every synagogue, there's a seat like I'm sitting. This, is, this would be the teacher's seat. And people just leave the teacher's seat, but they would call it Moses' seat because it's a mosaic priesthood. So in every synagogue, there's a seat where the person who's going to teach is going to teach from. Today, we call that a pulpit, right? So Moses' seat is their word for pulpit. And so he's saying, like, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat, but they're not doing what Moses told them to do. They're, they're not there. So whatever they tell you to observe, do it. In other words, if they're teaching the Old Testament, do what the Old Testament says. There's nothing wrong with the law. This is where I think it's amazing that people say the Old Testament's not relevant anymore. I just, it's stunning because there's nothing that says that in the New Testament. In fact, he's saying, as they teach you the Old Testament, you should do everything they say. But don't do what they do because as human beings, they're horrible people. So this religious obligation is when they talk about a heavy burden, uh, the chains, the guilt, the shame. Have you ever been to churches like this? You don't leave feeling better. You leave feeling worse. That says something about the spirit of that church and what kind of legalism they're preaching. Jesus said in Matthew eleven thirty, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And basically his burden is to love God and love other people. And beyond that, all, you know, all the law and the prophets uh, can be summarized. So Jesus is warning the crowd, do good things, study the word, but don't follow these hypocrites. In other words, everyone has the full potential of, of realizing God's love. And most never realize it because the final judgment on religious legalism, pompousness, arrogance, the final judgment on that is you're responsible for who you listen to and who teaches you. And I'm not just saying that because I'm teaching right now, but the obligation Jesus in, in verses three and four, what he's putting on every person in the crowd is you're responsible for where you go to church. You have a, you, this is a command that he says. Don't do what they're doing. They bind heavy burdens. But their works, verse 5, will be seen by all men. They make their phylacteries broad and they enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. They do everything they do for show and to be more pompous and more built up. And it's fake, you know? Sometimes you get the smarmy pastor when they meet you and they're all kind of, their words are just dripping with oil, you know, and just, hey, how you doing? And you're just like, you're not a real human being. You don't even know how to talk to me. You're talking to me like a, like a synagogue rabbi. Like there's, you're not human anymore. You've went into your little pastor place, you know, wearing your white suit and your gold tie. Um, it, it's just weirdness. And it becomes, it, it becomes just as bad of a religion as any, any pagan religion that's out there. So there's nothing in it. So we choose who we follow. We choose our spiritual authority because God's passing individual responsibility onto his followers in this moment. And the way he's critiquing the Pharisees is that it's not what they're teaching. The Old Testament's fine. It's what they're doing. It's in their head, but it's not in their heart. And I got to tell you, this is one of the greatest curses on the church right now. All these people that know the scriptures, but they don't do anything about it. doesn't change their day-to-day -day life at all. So the religious stuff they do is for show. It's about appearing holy, not being holy. The phylacteries, the word for that, I had to look that one up. They're little boxes that they would wear, 
And it's because of Deuteronomy 18, uh, 11, 18. Therefore, you shall lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them on your, uh, for a sign on your hand. And there may be frontlets between your eyes, the same place the mark of the beast is going to go. So they would put the Shema and they would write it on a little piece of paper and they'd stick it in a box and they'd literally wear a box on their forehead that had the Shema in the box. That is taking Deuteronomy 11:18 to a ridiculous literal person. Like the idea was to know the word of God and actually like think about it as you go through your day. And they would put boxes on their wrists and they'd write it stuff on them. And I've done that. I put Bible verses on my hand so I can memorize it. The Pharisees had taken it to a whole new level because it wasn't about actually living the Shema, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. It was more about just having a bigger and bigger box. So then they'd get artists to carve their boxes and then they become these beautiful, I mean, honestly, they're beautiful. These Jewish phylacteries are gorgeous. Craftsmanship, they would get, get them lined with gold, you know, the heavenly metal. And the phylacteries, the bigger your phylactery, the better. And I got this thing in my head where I'm imagining a guy go with a phylactery about this big because now he's the most holiest of all of them. Expanding the garments comes from Numbers 15.39. You shall be, the word of God shall be unto you a fr uh, for a fringe so that you can look on it and remember the commandments of the Lord and do them. The whole point of the little pomegranates on the end of the robes was so that every time they heard the bells tinkle, like they would think of God's word and remember it. They would just go through their whole day um, praying without ceasing, thinking of the Lord God all day. So they love the best places. That comes from the idea in the first situation. Uh, this is kind of still like this today, too. When you go to a wedding, there's assigned seats, little cards on the table. They did this all the time in the first century. The people with the best prestige got the best seats, and that was to the right hand of whoever was the host. This is why John and James were, right, can we sit at your right hand? Because the placement was really important to the disciples, and Jesus is saying that's a problem with these people. They care too much about their seats. So he taught his disciples, when you go to a party, don't assume you're even at the table. Go sit in the corner until somebody calls you to the table and honors you. So I did this at your house, Lisa. I just sat in the corner until people wanted to talk. And then you're coming, and it, and it sends a totally different message than walking in with your robes and your big box on your head. You know, you're kind of, hi, I'm here. The rabbi has arrived. Watch out. They thought, well, I think some of the ladies thought I was a, just a kitchen helper when they got there. What they thought you were like, fuck. They thought I was your son, and you, 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 you wrangled my arm to come help you host for this stuff because I'm, over, I'm just serving and helping. And Lisa just had me opening jars, like 10 jars. But, and, and I'm not saying that to be prideful. I'm saying because that's how we're taught as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not here to puff ourselves up over other people. We're here to endear ourselves to people, to serve them, to be the least in that situation. Jesus goes on to teach in verse 7, Greetings in the marketplaces. And to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. They just love being called rabbi. But you don't be called rabbi. For one is your master, the Christ. And you're all brethren. That, that's family. You're all brothers and sisters. Don't call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father. He's in who is in heaven. And don't be called teachers. For one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this goes to that idea. Okay, so we can easily see this. Like, this is a weird human tendency, and Jesus is going to go on to give a bunch of woes, things we got to watch out for. And that's why this, this chapter is kind of fun today. We can easily see, and, you know, those other Christians use these titles like Father, Father Sean, 
you know, or they use bishop or eminence or the revered reverend or the holy high deaconess of this. And it's all, you, you, I went into Wikipedia just looking for religious Christian titles. It's pages of weird titles. Archbishop, hieromonk, protodeacon, ordained elders. You can't just be an elder. You got to be an ordained elder. Um, so those are easy. And, and then the holy vicar, reverend abbot. I like that one too. So Sean, what should we call you? And the idea is you call me Sean. So I think this is an important concept. It's easy to see when we look at hypocritical religious situations. But let me ask you another question because we got a couple of these in the room. Do we see the same danger in the word doctor or pastor or minister? We use those words, right? Are those words thing that can be a stumbling block to other people when they come hang out with us? And is that something that can be there? So we can't take this single line out of context, which is never use a title. That's ridiculous. And in fact, if you just flip down to verse 32, Jesus himself uses the word father. That's not the point. It's not that we no longer have fathers. The point is we don't walk around having people call us by those titles, which are essentially job duties. People don't come in going, oh, rabbi, rabbi, oh, teacher, teacher. People come in and say, hey, Sean, how you doing? Right? Grant, you kind of watch the door when we, they don't go, hello, Reverend Deakard, security, elder, master, pastor person. They're like, hey, Grant. And there's a different way that we interact with each other. We don't use titles with each other, right? Though we may have titles that explain what we do in the fellowship. So there's, this is kind of, again, don't take this out of whack. He's talking about a situation where people love their title more than they love their God. And that's a danger for us. Only one is your teacher, the Christ, uh, Christians quickly then, <laughs> this is funny, this is how humans are. Christians dump the term rabbi almost instantly. Like within a week, they stop using the term rabbi. That's all they heard here. And then within 100 years, we're right back to using those same titles within the church community. And it's part of stagnating in a church. The point is to not stop calling our dads dad. Like that's not what we're doing here. But it's not to elevate other people above other people. So even in praise, when we get it, it's to say, well, praise God. Thank the Lord. Way to go, brother. I'm glad you're blessed. I'm glad something I could do could bless your life. That's amazing. And, and you guys have counseled, like, I got to get more graceful about doing that because it's okay to say thanks to each other. That's how we encourage one another. It is nice to have people say thank you. Hey, thanks for bringing the food today, Hawks. You know, what a blessing to all of us that we get to eat awesome food. And that's a gift. And they're not just like, oh, no, no, don't call me food bringer. I don't want the title. No, it's just like, praise God. Something I could do for a brother and sister that blesses their day and makes Sunday that much more special. Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. So he who's greatest among you shall be your servant. This is like back in Matthew 18, 4, when he taught his disciples. He added that we should be like little children. How can we help? What can we do? You ever notice that when kids are in elementary school and they hang out with their parents, it's like, I'll do that. I can help with that. Let me mix that. I'll do that. Can I push the lawnmower? You know, and you're thinking, I don't know if I want kids much longer. Sure, push the lawnmower. Um, when kids are young, they're anxious to help and serve, and they're not worried about how low or high the work is. And I think when Jesus keeps coming back to this point of humbling ourselves, it's not about doing the thing that gives us the most prominence. It's about doing the thing that's the biggest blessing to the most number of people that God's given us the talent and ability to do. What can I do? How can I help? Like little kids ask the same question. But he who's greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus is going to fulfill this one himself. He's going to die for all of us. How can I help? What can I do? 
while we got this curse of sin. So when Jesus asked that question, what I can do is give my divine nature incarnate in a human body and I can make it the pure and spotless sacrifice so everybody's sin gets erased. That's a pretty big service, making him the greatest among us, not even close. Fake money is just like fake religion. It's great until you realize it's fake. And then you have a responsibility. You can't keep using the fake money. You're supposed to get rid of it and tell the government where you got it so they can start tracking down the, the counterfeiters. Religion's the same way. It's great until you realize this is fake and there's nothing here. And then you have a responsibility to get rid of it and walk away. And Jesus hands that. Now we get eight woes. These parallel perfectly with the eight Beatitudes in chapter 5. One argument can be made that all of the book of Matthew is a giant chiastic form, which we'll make as we get towards the end of the book. But this is one example where you've got eight Beatitudes in chapter 5, and in chapter 23 you've got eight woes, the blessings and the curses, just like the Old Testament. So, and I'll do a little conviction alert here. Um, all eight of these... The more I thought about them, the more I felt convicted in my own heart. So the Bible will step on your toes in the next 20 minutes. Like this is going to happen. I'm not doing that because I don't like you. I'm doing it because the Bible says it and Jesus is teaching us. So try to put on your thick skins, your big girl pants, big boy pants. Um, this is the stuff that, you know, you don't go to churches and hear a sermon series on the eight woes. Um, but we're going to do them and we're going to go through all of the woes. These are things that we should be aware of. We should be warned by. Verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They're stumbling blocks. They get in the way. When you think you're righteous, and it's not God's righteousness you're putting on, the, the end result of that is almost always that you don't expand the invitation into the kingdom. You actually are the reason people don't want anything to do with the church. You become that thing that non-Christians get in their head and say, I just don't want anything to do with that. And the bigger you puff yourself up, the more public you make yourself, the more people say, I don't want anything to do with the church. I don't do church anymore. I, I just, there's too many idiots in the church. And my response to that is, yeah, there sure are. You're right. It's, I hate religion too. It's horrible. It's a plague on this planet. That's why I don't do religion. I do Jesus. I choose Jesus over that nonsense. Exact opposite of blessed are the poor in spirit. These are people that aren't the poor in spirit. They're the stumbling blocks. They shut up the kingdom of heaven. Um, I think it's interesting that, and this is totally out of context, but the words you shut up are in, actually in the Greek. So Jesus works that up. So he starts off with shut up, <laughs> right? Shut up. Stop misrepresenting Jesus and being a stumbling block to people that are out there. You don't want anything to do with Jesus. Stop being part of it. Stop doing All you're interested in is your puffed up titles and names. And you just get in the way. You shut up. So, the holy roller, the priggish, the arrogant, the legalist, they just put people off. They scare folks away. In the end, they give Christians a bad name. So, beware of that. Don't think that you are better than other people because you're further along in your spiritual walk than other people are. Don't stop being poor in spirit. I'm nothing. I'm humble. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a brother. I'm a sister. That's it. I'm never going to be anything beyond that. And I'm so okay with that because Jesus is the only father, the only master, the only Lord that I have. Not me. So be poor in spirit. Verse 14, second one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I think Jesus is just like, 
This is his last shot, so he just loves calling them hypocrites. You're actors, you're fake. For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you'll receive greater condemnation. So the beatitude is we should, that we should be mourning with those who mourn. These people aren't mourning with the widows. They're devouring the widows. What does this look like? Spiritual leaders that see rich widows and think, ooh, money, I can take this person, right? And they, they devour, they eat that up, or they become a safety net for those widows. And instead of pointing them to Jesus, they're pointing them to the church. And it's not okay. Uh, in tying that in with the long prayers, that idea of, of, of thinking the Lord needs you to be more lengthy in your prayers, more eloquent, more logical, more, poet, more poetic, or more numerous. God doesn't want any of that out of our prayers. He just wants your heart, honesty, simple, straightforward. So I don't know about you. Have you ever been around people that pray and they, you can tell they're just praying to puff themselves up? Anybody want to admit that? I find it off-putting, right? The Lord knows what you're saying. You don't have to speak King James for him to know what you're saying. He speaks multiple languages. He's good with that. The condemnation for people that do this, the people that, that don't know how to mourn with people that are mourning or be brokenhearted with people that are brokenhearted, to bring themselves back to that place where you can empathize or sympathize with people, there's greater condemnation for those people. Speaking again to the idea that judgment will have varying degrees. So there's, there's a second thing to be aware of for us as Christians. Don't do religion to impress other people. We don't do church and religion so that other people can think more of us, right? And that idea of being benefit from that being impressed. So verse 15 is the third woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel. The Greek there is to compass. You compass the land and sea. To win one proselyte, and when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Okay? Oh, my goodness. I get super proud of the fact that for a little fellowship, we got multiple people overseas right now. But there's something to be aware of in that too. Don't just go traveling around as a missionary. So the, the, in the first century, this was actually kind of a thing in Jewish tradition. They'd actually had pretty active missionary work going on. The rabbis would get all excited. They'd raise money. They'd go with zeal. And they would try to bring people into Judaism and have them get circumcised and have them come into the kingdom. This is why... In, the disciples had such an argument about this in the early, the early church is the early church decided to not be circumcising people anymore, right? So, but there's a hypocrite nature here. If the meek inherit the earth, how about the prideful people that travel the earth? Do they inherit? Like, this is a complete, like, it's a, it's a balance to that. We should be the meek that, that inherit the earth. These are the prideful going out and claiming the earth. Scary stuff. Be wary of this. And again, I, this is right at the end of his ministry. These are really complex because it's easy for us to go, well, then we shouldn't do any missionary work, right? Oh, but that's not what he's saying. Woe to you. Beware of this. Watch out for this stuff. And he's actually still, he's talking to the crowds here about the Pharisees and the scribes. Look at what these people do. And he's reason after reason, he's finding fault. He's finding flaws. They're not the perfect sacrifice. They're not even a decent priesthood. So, it, the idea of traveling land and sea, mis being missionaries, to win one proselyte. If you're going overseas with the church's money and only one person gets saved from your whole missionary effort, you've got to question if God's in it or not, right? And, and it's not about numbers, I get that. But when there's no fruit to the ministry, we should be wary of that ministry. If we go out week after week after week and we do this thing, thing A, whatever that thing is, 
and nobody actually gets saved or disciple or grows in their faith, you don't see people coming into the church to join the kingdom of heaven, something's wrong with that thing A, regardless of how holy we think it is. It doesn't work. God's not in it. Somebody's doing it because it makes them feel good about themselves. It's a big phylactery on their head. I'm the person that does thing A. I'm the phylactery person. And Jesus is saying, watch out from that. You're not meek when you do that. You're so prideful. You think you can go overseas and tell people how to live. Some missionary efforts in the church have seen massive turning to God as a result of missionary efforts. Some missionary efforts are actually things where they bring disease to people and push their culture on other people. And so then the non-believing world goes, well, missionaries are just cultural um, colonialists. No, they're not. Those missionaries are cultural colonialists, and they should be worried about how they're doing their missionary work because they're not brothers and sisters. They're trying to tell people everything that's wrong with their culture. And there may be things, you know, like human sacrifice is something that's wrong with their culture. There might be things to address, but there is a subtle, nuanced difference in how we go about doing kind of missionary work and how we do things. For me, this is a big deal. I, and, and the word proselyte there in the Greek means newcomer. You got one newcomer into the faith, and that's all you got. So learning religious traditions is not making new believers in a healthy way. If all you're doing is going to teach people a religious tradition, you're just making them a greater son of hell than you are. And we should be aware of that than I am. It pointed at me too. So we travel the world instead of being meek. We go out with this pride. So that's the thing. Beware. Don't pretend that when you do ministry without a calling, with miniature baby fruit, and there's no spirit in it, don't pretend that you're doing it for God. Wake up. Be wary of that. Be woke. You ready for more woes? Or is, this gets kind of overwhelming because on each one you're like, yeah, okay, I've been there. Verse 16, woe number four. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if whoever swears by the gold in the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For what's greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gift of the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. He who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits on it. Now, this swearing by thing, <laughs> Christians have largely eliminated that from our culture. We don't walk around going, I swear upon the gold in the temple. Um, you know, unless you're watching old movies. This goes back to Jesus' teaching that when we make promises, our yeses are yeses, our noes are noes. It's really simple how we do this. There's no, you don't, we don't have to make up elaborate ways to swear. This is pointing out a tradition with the Pharisees. It's like he's unloading, like he's been saving up for 33 years his issues with the priesthood. And Jesus is just like unloading them at this point. What they would do in the first century is that they would, with Gentiles, they would make promises, right? This is where Jewish people got a really bad name globally. They would promise something to a Gentile, but the Gentile wouldn't know the difference between I swear by the temple or I swear by the gold in the temple. So it was a secret code that they would come up with. And if I make you promise, well, I swear by the temple that I'll, I'll do this deal with you, and then I break the deal, they're like, you swore by the temple. Ha ah, ha, but I didn't swear by the gold in the temple. The temple's just a building. It's the gold that matters. Right? You see the evil like nature of this? Their yeses aren't yeses. So they're, they're, they would do these things to twist each other. But to another Jew, it was a way to test that we speak the same language. 
Because to another Jew, I'd say, I swear by the temple, and they'd go, ah, 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 swear by the gold in the temple. I know this game, right? So they would have insiders and outsiders. When we speak, when we swear, when we say things with our words, we're a reflection of God himself whose word is perfect, unending, enduring, and never changes. So if we're to represent God to the world and our word changes all the time, we're not much of a representation. It's an important thing. And if you're thinking of like a modern application, we shouldn't be hungering and thirsting for other people's money or to say things to people and then change our mind later and do the opposite or whatever. And we're all guilty of this, right? But our goal isn't to try to make promises that don't come true. Our goal is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We just search for righteousness. That's all we try to do, which means we want to be honest with other people, even folks outside our group, right? We're not trying to create insider language that, where we can recognize a stranger when they walk in the door. We're trying to create language that involves everybody. They're all welcome. Beware of this. Don't create traditions that elevate the traditions over the righteousness of the saints. Don't create elaborate excuses for our sins. Just confess it and move on. Woe number, whatever number we're on, five. They just keep coming. It's kind of a bummer week, but at the same token, like, send it, give it to. Here's the other thing. I'm a big boy, and we're all big boys and big girls here. Jesus, just tell me the truth. I'm so tired and not hearing the truth. So that, I, I guess it's a bummer chapter, but I love hearing it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just want to know what Jesus, what God doesn't like. What bugs God? And then I want to stop doing it. And just give, it, give me the full counsel, Lord. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you, Notice he called them blind when it came to all the tradition stuff. And now he's back to his hypocrites title. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. You ought to have these things, these you ought to have done but without leaving the others undone, blind guides who strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Both gnats and camels are not kosher food. You shouldn't eat either one. Why you'd want to eat a camel? Because they spit. Because they get you angry. And then you're like, kill that camel and eat it. But you're not supposed to do that. I'm, I'll get back on my... Mint and anise, these were really prescribed, specific, particular things where they're, they're stretching the word of God into these really specific kinds of tithes. And then they would keep these super hard, weird, obscure things, but then they didn't do things like justice, mercy, mercy, and faith, right? They're missing the whole point. And God would rather they get the point and not worry about the little stuff. These you ought to do. Note that he's not saying to not do the mint and anise and the cumin. He's just saying you ought to do these things, but they should be foundational to other things. So let me say that in a different way. We can talk about doctrine, the weightier matters of the law, the deep, is it pre-trib or post-trib? Is it free will or is it, or is it preordained? We can talk about those doctrines. And Jesus actually says, like, you ought to have done these things, verse 23. But don't leave the other things undone. And again, this is a woe, like this is something we Christians can get into. We can get into coming on Sunday and arguing these finer points of doctrine, like we're these masters of doctrine, but we don't actually go out and tell people about Jesus. Woe to us when all we care about is the head knowledge and we're not showing grace and mercy to the people that are here. Like, <laughs> don't let your study of the Bible overwhelm loving people. 
don't do that. It's better that you don't know how to study the Bible or you struggle with it, but you're really good at loving people. That's far better in God's kingdom to be that person. I remember we had a guy that came to Bible study. I'll call him affectionately the free will guy. And for two, three weeks, like every week it was like, okay, but that means free will, right? That's free will. And it was all he wanted to talk about was this finer point of doctrine. And at the same time, when he came, he was kind of above everybody else, right? And he didn't really make connections with people. He didn't really bond with people. And, and, and if you're listening to the podcast right now, I'm saying this as Jesus is saying it to the Pharisees in hopes of repentance from this. Come back to the kingdom and to say these things in love, woe to you, beware of this thing where all you want to talk about is free will doctrine and you forget to make friends with that person who you think is less than you because they don't understand the finer points of doctrine. So I loved one because I was this guy and I went up to the pastor and I was free will guy. And I was like, so do you believe in Calvinism or do you believe in Armenianism? Like, which one are you? And the guy goes, I don't know, which one gets you closer to Jesus? And I love that answer because it takes the whole higher discussion and says it just doesn't matter. What matters is loving people and acting out what we see. So justice, mercy, faith, that's the goal of everything. And it's the opposite of the beatitude that says, blessed are the merciful, right? He specifically names mercy in this one, right? It's parallel. It's the opposite of doing that. It's similar to Micah 6, 8, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. It's an easy rule to follow. It's hard to work it out in our hearts because we actually have to believe we are equal to or less than everyone around us. And that's for some people really hard. Difference between a symbol or a theological discussion and a lifestyle. Let's debate about the Trinity. Word Trinity is not even in the Bible. We can debate about it. It helps us understand concepts like son of David, son of God. Certainly helps make sense of that. But it's not the point. The point is to love people. Right? Again, Jesus doesn't say to not argue those things. He actually says it's good to do that, but keep it in context. For brothers, you've been called to liberty. Only don't use your liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but use your liberty to serve one another. Find ways to be a blessing. He calls them blind guides. And the gnat and the camel is just this vivid image of Pharisees with big boxes on their head trying to stuff camel down their face. I mean, the picture of the Pharisees just gets uglier and uglier. Beware of neglecting the things that matter in the kingdom for the things that are interesting. Verse 25, <laughs> number six. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Again, the image just gets worse and worse. Now they're box-headed camel eaters with dirty cups, right? It just gets uglier and uglier. It's not the feast of the lamb. It's the feast of just disgustingness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5, 8. Here he's saying you're not pure on the inside. There's something busted. You're going to church every Sunday. You're hanging out with Christian people. You know how to speak the language, but then you're watching filth all week. And you're, and you're supporting it by putting it into your head. Or you're, or you're going to places you shouldn't be going to. And Jesus warns us of that. It's not invisible. God sees what we listen to, what we watch, what we read. He knows what we're doing. And to think we're, and, and it's something in our flesh always thinks we're fooling God or he'll forgive us again. And beware of that. Be wary of it. 
Don't try to look godly. Try to actually be God godly. Start with honesty and build from there, right? We got a little shocked when one of our brothers was like, I'm looking at porn. And we were like, like Ooh, don't tell us that. But you know what? Start with honesty and we'll build from there. If that's the worst you got, brother, time to start working on your holiness. Let's take care of that. We got another brother who just dumped his laptop because he, he, he could take it to private places and he struggled with it. Amen. It's not the sin. We're all sinners. We all got stuff. Let's deal with it. Let's get it out of our life, right? So we can walk in purity and in righteousness that God's put on us because he's helped us be a new creation. Be wary of that. Watch out. Here's another one. Number seven, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside they're full of dead man's bones with all uncleanness. So now they're dead camel-eating, box-wearing, dirty cup. It just gets worse and worse. Now they're zombies and their flesh has fallen off. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy, you're full of acting and lawlessness. You're always trying to be something you're not. Whitewashed tombs. The reason they would paint the tombs white is to keep a really a, a law that, that to be kosher, you don't touch dead things. So they would whitewash the tombs so they wouldn't easily trip over them, right? So they're walking along the way or up to Jerusalem, and they could easily see the tombs. So they would whitewash them. And frankly, it's beautiful. It's really pretty. On the side of Jerusalem, it's still a graveyard. You can still see the tombs. I don't want to see inside the tombs, but the outsides look really pretty. And isn't that the temptation of the flesh? We don't really want to see the insides of each other sometimes. We don't want to know what's there and what we're struggling with. Too much information, right? TMI, people. Um, maybe in confidence with a brother or sister that you trust that we start digging out and cleaning out the insides of the tombs too. Cups, tombs, right? In doing this idea, and, and the word that gets used in here in verse 28, you're full of hypocrisy, and then Jesus adds lawlessness. You're chaos. You're war. You're at war with yourself. You're working really, really hard to look good, and you're on the inside, you're, you're, you're working really, really hard to find new ways to sin. That's not resolution or peace with God. You're not a peacemaker if you don't even have peace in yourself. This goes to your point, Bonnie. You have to find some peace with God before you can do anything with other people. You have to. If that's not resolved, you're just hypocrites. You're just acting. You're lawless because you're trying to talk about God's law, but you don't have any for yourself. Beware of harboring sin. You can fool humans, but God sees all the garbage. He sees all the zombie flesh that we have. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Like, you feeling convicted yet? It just keeps coming. Number eight's going to hit like a hammer. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and you say, if we lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have partaken with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you're witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, the same term that John the Baptist used with them. Brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? They're like going around going, we would never have persecuted the prophets. We're righteous. We're holy. We're the good people. We would have never been the mob that killed Jesus. We have never shouted against him. Here's the reality. The odds are we all would have been in the mob. Right? Just statistical probability. That's the odds. Did that Jesus nut? He went too far with calling himself God. We don't want any part of that. 
And that's not to say we should follow after every cult leader that's out there. But instead of thinking, like, when you look at the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. He's flipping that and saying, you're the people that persecute. You're on the other side of that equation. So they're going to make false accusations about Jesus. They're going to hang him on a cross. We know that, but when he's saying this, they don't know that's about what's going to be happened. So when it says if you're going to fill up the full measure of father's guilt, you're going to be worse than your fathers did. They stoned and killed the prophets. You're going to crucify the Messiah. You're way worse than your fathers. You who think, you hypocrites who think you're so holy. And I'm, think, I'm putting that on myself going, well, I like to think I would have been with Jesus, but pre-Pentecost, pre-release of the Holy Spirit, like I, I assume that I did all my own saving because I was wise enough to pick Jesus. No, the Holy Spirit worked on my heart and got through my thick skull so that I could come into the, to, to the acceptance of Jesus Christ. I could use my free will, but I had to get past myself to do it. So the Holy Spirit did something in me for that to happen. Beware of the idea of thinking that, that we're somehow better than those who went before us. You know, I would have stuck with Jesus even when everybody else ran, not me, I'm different. Don't think that. Beware of that idea. Listen to the humilities of the, the Christians after the resurrection. They kept their humility, and it's why the church spread. Listen to this, Romans 7, 18. The writer says, For I know that in me, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I don't find it. This is the error of, of Eastern religions. You look deep down inside yourself, you're not going to find a shining light. You're going to find a zombie. You're going to find a dead person, an indifferent person, or an angry person. If you really are honest about it, that's what's waiting for you at the depths of your soul. So let's not look in the depths of our soul. <laughs> like, at the same token, I'm just going to give my life to the Lord, and now I'm going to let the Lord fill me up. And I'm not looking for me, I'm looking for Jesus. So we start in honesty, and, and, we, and we move from there right? Batman went through a change. Okay, just comic book history. They used to take white pieces of paper and then draw Batman on it, right? And this was the colorful era of Batman. But then in the 90s, they came out with a cartoon where they took black paper and started painting light onto the black paper. And it created this dark, atmospheric, detective, film noir kind of Batman that then carried over into the movies. But it started with that they changed the paper and it changed the whole feel of everything. It's still Batman. It's the same artist. It looks identical, but it changes everything about it. And on our lives, it's exactly the same way. We're not righteous people that sin now and then. And we just got to watch away those sins and get rid of those chains. We're not that. We're black on the inside. We're sinners saved by grace. That light that comes into our life that then grows. And if we know that about each other, we can have a lot more patience. When we look deep, we don't find good. We find the flesh. We find our own will. And the will is always present with me. My intention is always there. And it's this daily working out our righteousness with fear and trembling that every single day we got to take our will and put it on the altar and get rid of it. Matthew 19, 17. So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. God. And if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Like Jesus is telling him, you got to rethink your worldview. You're writing on, on black paper. You're not writing on white paper. You're not righteous that somehow has to erase the black. 
you're black that needs to somehow let God come into you and paint light. God's going to redeem the fallen self. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. You know what? You're just going to go down this path because this is the one you've picked. To me, that's terrifying. What if my will is all about selfishness? What if I study the word because I like being called a teacher? What if I like the fact that my kids respect me and that's why I do things? What if I just want my wife to smile at me with those beautiful eyes and say, I love you, honey. You're such a good and holy man. If that's my will, and you know what? It is. There is a part of me that loves that stuff. I love the fact that the women's group were delighted by hearing about the Star of Bethlehem. But am I doing that because I love that? I love sitting in the seat of Moses? Or am I doing it because honestly I'm just working it out with fear and trembling and total humility? And that battle is always there. Be wary of it. Woe to us. Don't attack the followers of Jesus. Let those people sing, preach, and pray in ways that are different than us. You got somebody who's just singing them for the Lord and we think they're weird? Let them do it. You know, and let's have room in our fellowship for people that are different than us. He calls them serpents, brood of vipers. The, the, it's one thing to be a serpent, you bite people. It's another thing to be a brood of vipers where they get into little balls, and I've told you my, spider, my snake story, or I will at lunch. A brood of vipers gather together because then they create their own heat. And it feels like the warmth of the Holy Spirit, but it's not. It's just people telling each other they're good people. And that brood doesn't do anything good. It just feeds on itself. And then 33, again, it just lands with a hammer. How can you, and the emphasis there is on the you, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is you can't. All these woes at some level or another, at least in my heart, every one of them, I can at some time in my life think, yep, I was there. I, I felt that, I know that feeling. And I know what that's like. It's not possible for me to get into heaven. I'm a black piece of paper. I'm not a white piece of paper. It's just so worked into every aspect of how I think, how I act, and how I live. So how can I possibly become humble? And the first step of being humble is to admit that you're a black piece of paper, right? The first step of being humble is to just be like, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Paul would say, I'm a bondservant. I'm a slave to Christ. And then he would say, I'm a sinner. And then progressively, chronologically, as you get to the end of his writing, he says, I'm, I'm the worst of all sinners. Like the, the more he serves in the kingdom, the more he realizes that the sin, the thing that is sin, is the, it's me. It's the voice in my head it, that makes me do the things that are defined as sin under the law. But it's actually my heart. Don't just not kill people. Don't even think bad thoughts about people. That's so weaved into my character. So you'd say, well, Jesus is being really scathing here. Why is Jesus being so harsh? This is not seeker-friendly. It's not. It's not nice. He's talking about sin. He's talking about death. He's, how can you escape hell? He brought up the four-letter word that you should never say. Jesus is unequivocal about hell in the Bible. It's one of the things we got to get used to in Minnesota. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. It's true. There's a reality there. Jesus is not our buddy. He's our king, right? He's not my, he, my pal. He's my Lord and Savior from sin and death. And there is the idea that he loves me. Uh, Jesus is my, my king and my Lord and my father in heaven, but father's discipline sometimes. So Jesus, I think, is saying this. Again, I don't, the flesh in me wants to hear Jesus just yelling at the Pharisees because they deserve it. 
But I don't think he has that tone, and I'll show you here why in a couple verses. I think he's saying this, and he's talking to the multitudes because he's warning them of these pitfalls. You guys don't do this. But he's not doing it in hatred of the Pharisees. I think he's actually doing this in part because he loves the Levites. He's not going to love them all the way to hell. Right? He's asking them another rabbinical question. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? You're a human. How can you do that? Jesus is saying that knowing that he can escape the condemnation of hell. He's pure. He's spotless. He's the Lamb of God. But the people furthest away from God's truth need the bluntness of the truth to get woke up. It's a wake-up call. And in Jesus' ministry from here, all 23 chapters of Matthew, every time somebody approaches Jesus with humility, they get grace and love and mercy. Every time someone approaches Jesus with pride, they get rebuked and warned, watch out, that's not the right attitude. Whoa. And the truth is both of those reactions are loving. And I, that's tough for us to understand sometimes. Love, grace, and mercy with the humble, that's loving. Rebuking the prideful, that's loving too. You're helping them both get closer to Jesus. And we have to discern who we're dealing with when we talk to people. We don't want to love people to hell by never bringing it up. And we don't want to be stumbling blocks either, the first one of the woes. We don't want to do it in such a way where we're just yelling at people. We do want to warn people, but how do you do that, right? Verse 34, therefore, all of these woes add up to the therefore. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. All of this comes true. That, you may come, that, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous, Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. Also, assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Abel was in Genesis 4.2. Zechariah is in 2 Chronicles 24. First and last people getting killed in the name of goodness. None of this is good. God would rather the Pharisees all accepted Jesus I honestly think that's God's preference, that Jesus could have come in and they could have found him impure and they would have all just followed him and all of Israel would have followed him too and they would have started inviting in Gentiles just like God planned. But Jesus is like, that's not going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen next. It says, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Jesus is assigning to himself the godhood and the high priestess because he's going to send. The only people that send uh, prophets is God. So when Jesus says, I will send you prophets, he's, he's assigning himself the position of God, as we just determined with son of David, son of God. So he is clearly calling himself God because he's going to send prophets. J then he looks at Jerusalem as a city, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that's the beginning of a lament. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted, and this is where I think he came with love, this is the tone we should read, all eight of those woes. I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate, just like the fig tree. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Till you see the resurrection, you're, you're done. I'm done with you guys. Just like the fig tree, the Mosaic priesthood is over. And we have this extended three-chapter passage where Jesus is taking that priesthood away from Mosaic priests and he's handing them on to his own disciples and followers. Again, I love this image. It's, 
we go from these woes to this image of a, a mother hen gathering her chicks. This is a beauty. This is why there's no problem with motherhood, right? It's a beautiful image that God's given us. This is what it looks like. God's love looks like a mother who protects her children and gathers them under her wing. That's what he's trying to do with the woes to the Pharisees. But he can see their hearts are wicked and they're not moving an inch. With every one of those woes, they're getting more and more resolute. We're going to kill this guy. We're going to kill this guy. It's God's will that saves us. It's our will that damns us. And we need to know God's will is to gather us, not to push us away. You shall see me no more. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. That's in Zechariah, you guys. You know, it's a great question for Jewish people. Who do you think Zechariah was talking about? Who have the Jewish people pierced? At what point has that happened? Um, and and that's just wonderful. Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, and, and again, this is an interesting one in the Greek. One who comes in the name of the Lord is to have the name of God. We just got done talking about the son of David and the son of God. Jesus is assigning this fact that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Comes is in the present tense, even though he's talking about the future. They will in the future say he comes now. And in the name of the Lord is to have the name of God, to not only be a blood relative of the throne of David, but to be the son of God. He'll come with God's name on him. He'll come in the name of God. So it is when, when the Lord or the king sends out a messenger, that messenger comes with that person's name on them or with the full authority of God behind them. And thus you get a new religion, Christianity. It's going to build from there. Next chapter, it gets, then he starts talking about his second coming. Like you, we're going to do all prophecy next week about what does it look like when Jesus returns, which we should be living in the hope of. I can't wait because we got done with the woes. Now we get into like, Jesus is coming back and he's going he's gonna to return and it will be a different world when he does. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you. Uh, Lord, I already pray for our hearts. These woes can be things we dismiss quickly, um, but to be wary is to be on guard like a soldier. We should be watching for it all the time. Um, Lord, help us to not do that in shame or in guilt, but to do it because we're so sick of sin that we just want to find it, root it out, and get rid of it. Like getting worms out of our doorframe or spiders out of our house. Uh, Lord, we want to clean the house and, and not leave behind zombie parts. Um, Lord, help us to just live for you and to do it with a, a commitment and a resolution. And Lord, help us to not shy away from our own guilt and the things we should be wary and woeful of. Lord, help us to assign it and to understand it and to, to work it out because um, we want to serve you, Lord. At the end of the day, we just love you and we want to, you to be the mother hen. We want you to bring us under your wings, to, bring, to gather us together, to bring us with a unity of spirit, um, and Lord, to not be like the, the hypocrites, not to be like the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, to follow your advice that you gave with full love and adoration for your people and, and for uh, the desire to bring your bride into the church. And Lord, we just love you and we pray for this food we're about to eat and we ask for you, Lord, to be um, uh, the spirit that's in our house that fills our, our fellowship and our time together and our discussion about these woes. Bless it in Jesus' name.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.